Amen. Please have a seat. And while you do, grab your Bibles and find James chapter 3. James chapter 3, if you would. And I'm going to jump right into it because, as usual, I have more to cover today than I have time to cover it, um, which is my fault, not anybody else's, but that's okay. James chapter 3, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. We've already been in chapter 5. We're going to be in chapter 3. Lord willing, I'll get to chapter 1, where we're supposed to be here in just a few minutes. But in James chapter, five, or chapter 3 and verse 13, he says this, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness, in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. It's the three enemies of the world, the flesh, and Satan. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, this series was planned months ago. And it really started in my heart um, last semester when I was in school and I had to write a paper on a book of the Bible and so I picked James and, and through a long extensive study and a 15 page paper later I came to realize that this passage that we just read is at the heart of the book of James. So that means that everything that we see in these messages that we're going forward in needs to be filtered through what we just read here. That ultimately, it's a book about doing, but it's a book about doing in a way that is, that is constantly dependent on the wisdom from above. Because we cannot do it on our own. Guys, to really understand and appreciate what James is going to tell us to do, we need to keep this passage top of mind. So I will start the sermons occasionally with this passage just to let you know. By the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will put a Bible in your hand. But guys, James, as we talked about, we started the series last week. If, if Daniel and Revelation, the series we were in last in this, during, through the summer, if it was really showing us here's who Jesus really is in, in the fullness and totality of it, and if, if the Advent season, those four messages of the Advent season, show us here's God's story and how he fulfills his promises, and then we did three weeks on witness, and they were to show us, hey, this is how the Holy Spirit walks with you through these six different disciplines that you practice, then James is going to slam all of those things together and he's going to say, if, if all of that is true, you know who Jesus is, you understand that you're part of a bigger story than your own life, and you have the power of the Spirit living in you, then this is what that's going to look like, how you're going to demonstrate your faith in life. And he's showing us 15 ways that genuine faith is demonstrated in our lives. Charles Spurgeon says this, He is already half false, who speculates on truth and does not do it. Truth is given not to be contemplated, but to be done. And that's why God put James in the Bible. Because he wanted to remind us that, you know what, we're not just to sit around and think about the deep things of God and no, 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 more, 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 more. We're to get out there and be about the business of doing the things of God. But just like we can struggle with our witness, last week we talked about trials, 
testing, we can, that, that can pull us away from our withness, those storms of life. We can also struggle, struggle with our withness when we encounter temptation. But that begs the question, what's the difference between testing and trial and temptation? So we're all on the same page. I'll start with this. Testing or trials is an opportunity to grow in Christ's dependence. When you undergo a testing or a trial, that was last week's message. Go back and listen to it online if you want to. It, it is an opportunity, God orchestrated opportunity to grow in Christ's dependence. But temptation is an enticement to evil, which the Bible calls sin, in Christ's denial. So the difference between testing and temptation is one is from God and the other is from the enemy. And we have three of them and we'll see that in this passage. So today's message is entitled, Getting Sick of Sin Struggles. So let's go back to chapter one where we're supposed to be and we're going to start reading today's passage, which you got last week and hopefully read this morning to prepare your heart. But I'm going to back up a step and start in verse 12 and I'm going to add verse 18 also. But in verse 12 of James chapter 1, it says this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away by and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The word of the Lord. So today's question that this passage that I just read in its entirety is going to answer for us today is how can you get ahead of the cycle of sin. How can you get ahead? Now, what I mean by get ahead, have you ever heard the phrase, I need to get ahead of that problem? I see a problem coming, so I need to put things in place so that, so that I get ahead of it and the problem doesn't come. That's what I mean by get ahead of sin, of the sin cycle. I am not here to say, do these things and you'll no longer sin. We all still struggle with sin. We are all still polluted with this flesh that is sinful. We live in a world that is broken and fallen. We have an enemy in Satan that is real. But being a Christian is not, we can't ever get sinless this side of eternity. But as you've heard it said, being a Christian shouldn't, doesn't make you sinless, but it should make you sin less. And that's what James is going to help us see today. But in order to put those things in place, the first thing we have to see is, what is the source of your temptation? We have to be clear about it. So James is going to show us right up front, in order to get ahead of the sin cycle, we have to be clear about where does our sin come from. So look at verse 13 and 14. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be, cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. When it says, let no one say, remember last week I mentioned that there are over 60 imperatives, that's commands, not suggestions, things we're supposed to do. Let no one say is one of those commands. He's not suggesting that we don't blame God for our sin. He's saying absolutely do not do it ever. Blame God for your sin issues. And then he says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And that's where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on this point. 
When he says carried away, that word there means lured. It's, it's this idea of enticing and dragging away. In fact, the New Living paraphrase does a really good job of paraphrasing this thought. In verse 14, it paraphrases the thought. Sorry, I'm, I lost it. Where is it? Let me back up a step. Maybe I don't have it. I'll come back. To, oh, sorry, I'll come back to it. Oh, sorry. There it is right there. Temptation. It's right there in front of me. Sorry. Temptation comes from our own desires when enti- when, which entice us and drag us away. So the way the New Living Translation paraphrases that passage is, is, is a good and clear understanding of. So sin, our desire, entices us. But it doesn't just entice us. It actually pulls us away. The question becomes, pulls us away from what? And the answer really is more not a what, but a who. It pulls us away from God. We are either moving and pressing closer and closer into God by being conformed to the image of Christ, or we are moving away from him. There's never a moment where we're just stagnant. Like, you're never just neutral. We are either moving closer to Christ or we're moving further from him moment by moment by moment. And, and I'm not a fisherman, but, but I've fished a few times. And when you drop your, your line in and you see how, like, the fish will come over and they'll say, hey, that looks pretty good. Right? And, and they sort of feel lured in by it. But at first they're like, yeah, maybe not. And they might swim around and they might sniff it a little bit or whatever it is fish do. Or maybe in their little fish brains they're going, you know what, mama fish told me never to touch one of those things. Right? Or, oh, you know what? Mama told me that the reason I haven't seen Daddy in a long time is because he did touch one of those things. Right? But what happens is they, they, they sort of get spooked and they swim away, but then they start thinking, oh, yeah, but that, that looked really good. It looked appetizing. So they come back and they take the hook and they get dragged away. And that's ultimately the word picture that he is using here. He is talking about being dragged away, in our case, not from the lake, but from God. And Satan is so clever at how he lures us in. Guys, Satan would n- will never look at a man who's happily married, fully in love with his wife, being fulfilled in the wife of his youth. He would never look at that man and come to him and say, you know what, have an affair on your wife. Because that man won't. But what he'll do is he'll by degree start moving us down a road. So if zero is I would never have an affair on Carrie, and ten is yeah, you know what, I'm in the middle of adultery. What he'll do is he'll move me to one. He'll say, you know what, just, just find a burden for that woman right there. And then he moves you down the road to three or four of, you know what, you, know, you just need to pray with her about that. And then, you know what, it's no, and then it's five or six. It's no big deal if you guys just have lunch together because it's a chance for you to hear her heart and for her to be able to share your heart, your heart and blah, blah, blah. And by the time you get to six or seven, ten doesn't seem like that big a step. So that's what he, and, and, and that's one example, but that's true in every area of sin. He will entice us with some little thing that seems attractive and start moving us down this road until we will do exactly what we said we would never do. In fact, what I say, and what we say in our house a lot is, the minute I say, I will never fill in the blank of a sin, man, the enemy's like, <laughs> you poor dumb thing, right? We cannot do that. But guys, we have to also understand that we have three, we cannot blame, we do not follow what the guys in the leadership program used to hear me say called Flip Wilson theology. Flip Wilson was a comedian back in the 60s. He had this uh, character that he played called Geraldine, and she would, he would say, the big thing was, the devil made me buy that dress, right? If, you're, if you ever, if, you're, if you want to be a little more cultured, Tom Sawyer would blame the devil 
for everything that was wrong in his life in, in, his, in his story. But guys, we do, we don't, especially as born-again believers, we do not have the freedom to blame Satan. We are always responsible for our sin. Sin is always an inside job. Sin is always an inside job. Why? Because it comes from, according to James, our own desires. Now, he uses, the NASB translates that word to lust. The ESV does a better job of translating it desire. Because the word in Greek is epthumeo. It's epthumeo, which just means a strong attraction to. When, when, because when we, when we hear lust in, in our English language, we think of sexual sin, sexual desire. When the Bible wants to talk about that, it uses the Greek word pornea, which is where we get the word pornography. Right? That's not the word he's using here. He's saying a strong, because so I don't want you to, the reason I stop and say that is because I don't want you to confuse sin with just sexual sin. This is any and all sin. And by the way, there are no degrees of sin to God. It is a strong desire to, I, it's, this, it's this thing that's innate in us of, I want, I want, I want, I want. Right? And that I want turns into I demand. Where did that come from? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to take the time to show you. Turn to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to take the time to look at this. Because guys, as I... I know we've been there before. I know I seem to use it a lot. Ever since our marriage conference that we had in July, where I, like, I, I am more and more convinced that we don't spend enough time thinking about what happened in these moments we're going to read in Genesis chapter 3. First book of your Bible, first couple pages, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Guys, it's also why um, the marriage conference that's coming up is entitled Your Own Personal Eden. Because Ray Ortland, who's a national speaker, is going to come here and talk to us about how to get back to the garden before what we're about to read right now. And he is phenomenal, by the way. Man, that, that man has got such a heart of grace. Ugh. Okay, so I'm going to pick it up in verse... I want, you, I want to show you why, where this I want, I want comes from. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. So he's doubt, why don't you just doubt God's word? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of every tree in the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God said, if You shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. So God has told them what's going to happen. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. So now he's not just questioning God's word, he's attacking God's word. And then it says, for he knows that the day that you eat it with your eyes, you, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So there's a lie. Knowing good and evil. Guys, so far, there's no sin happening here. Right? So far, all they're having, I mean, sin is, is here because Satan's here, but Adam and Eve have not sinned yet. But look what happens. When the woman saw, enticed, lured, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. And their eyes, had bo both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And guys, in that scene, in those seven verses, everything fell apart. We read that, and it's sort of this, like, like it's a fairy tale story. Guys, get this. For the first time in Adam and Eve's life, they feel shame. They, they experience pain. 
Because they've never experienced that. And, all, and, and I don't know, we don't really know how long they lived with God, just the two of them, but they never experienced conflict. They never experienced lying and deceit. Because we can't even imagine that because our world is so broken and filled with all of those things. We cannot comprehend what it must have been like prior to this moment. But it is why we need to go back here in our, and say, guys, we have inherited this brokenness, but we've also partnered in this brokenness. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife themselves and the wife hid themselves. Because that had never happened before. Because there was no reason for them to hide themselves. And it says, in the, they hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? What a great question. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Guys, fear never experienced until now. Adam didn't know what to do with it. So I hid myself. And I've shared this before. And we've been hiding ourselves from God ever since. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me. She, uh, you laugh, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The re you gave me gave me this, the fruit from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, oh, that serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we've inherited all of these bad things, and oh, by the way, the blame game. And it's how we tend to relate to one another. Why? Because, guys, the enemy is out to destroy relationship. The enemy is out to destroy relationship. First and foremost, this one, but he doesn't stop there. He was out to destroy the relationship between Adam and Eve from the beginning. And that's why they immediately start pointing fingers at each other. Guys, this is what sin does. Sin is anti-relationship. It destroys relationship. Guys, we see this in how we treat each other. Right? When we do marriage counseling or just, just getting, like, guys, what, what do we do? We demand our own way. We play the blame game. We, we, we say that we're the victim. We say that, well, because this person did this to me, I am justified to do this to them. It's exactly what they're doing. It's, it's been the same since the beginning. But guys, none of us will stand before a holy God someday at the Bema seat to receive our reward and see some of that reward leave because he'll be like, Doug, you didn't live with Carrie in an understanding way. And so, and so you're going to, I'm going to remove some of this eternal reward from you. Not your salvation, but some of your reward. And I'm going to say, I cannot in that moment go, yeah, but don't you know how difficult Carrie was to live with? It doesn't fly with God. But we do that all the time. Someone's sin against you never excuses your sin against them. Remember that. All of that blaming that we see in the garden that we do ourselves is not an excuse to sin. But why does he attack? Why does Satan attack relationship? Guys, get this. This is huge. This is the gospel story, and it's your story. Because if, if the glory of God is seen in relationship between the triune Godhead, God Father, God Son, God Spirit, if the glory of God is seen between the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, if the, relation, if the glory of God is seen in how we relate to each other, then every time the enemy can drive a wedge in any one of those things, he will. Because it's diminishing the glory of God. Guys, your conflict, your fight 
Your sin struggle is, he can, because we never sin in isolation. We never sin alone. Guys, think about how many of your sin issues affect the relationships you're in. Guys, and don't sit here and go, yeah, but nobody even knows about this sin, so how can it affect the relationship? I'm telling you, no matter what, it does. You cannot lust, sexually speaking, after somebody else and then treat your wife in a loving way. It does not work. We are not wired that way. You cannot be angry with these people over here and have an argument in your mind with them and then walk in and be loving to your children. It does not work that way. And the enemy is in all of those moments of conflict because he's trying to drive you to a place where you don't give God the glory in the relationships that you're in. Guys, all sin, I've said this many times, all sin is a war for worship. All sin is a war for worship. And sin, every time we feed ourselves that, that sin, it is an act of self-worship. And the more we feed ourselves, the bigger self gets, the harder we are to relate with. Both this way, if I'm, if I'm huge and God is small, I'm not relating. If I'm huge and, and Carrie and my daughters are small in my mind, I'm not relating well because you are below me and you should just submit to what I have to say. We f but sin is feeding yourself. It is this constant feeding of self. I've said we are at war, but Satan, we can't blame Satan for all of it. We have, we have him as an enemy, we have the world as an enemy, we have our flesh as an enemy. You are always responsible for your sin. You are always responsible for your sin. You are always responsible for your sin. So look at the table talk question on the back of your connecting points. What is your biggest supplier of sin, of your sin struggles? What is the big, your bit, what is, guys, first of all, you ought to, you ought to put on there as an answer, me. I am the biggest supplier. Now, as you have time later, and I'm way over time already, take the time to think about what are the specifics in your life that, that feed your sin. So first, if we're going to get ahead of the sin cycle, we have to be clear about what the sources of our sin are. And then the second point goes pretty quickly in verse 15. We have to recognize the steps to temptation. Look at what he says. We're back in James. Sorry, we're back in James. I got to get back to James. We're back in James. Look at verse 15. Then when lust or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin is accomplished, it, gives birth, it, gives, it brings forth death. In one verse, he's talking about childbirth. The childbirth is death. The, the child is death that comes from sin, the pregnancy of sin, which comes from the conception of desire. So desire is, is the fertilization of the sin. It's the thinking about it in your mind. That gives birth to, or that, that brings about a baby. And once that baby is born, it leads to death. Guys, I've, all those things, what he's, what he's describing here in verse, is, is are describing the very soul of human beings. He's talking about your mind, your will, and your emotions. That's what makes up your soul. And guys, what we fixate on, we will migrate towards. What captures your heart will consume your mind. That's what he's telling. He's saying, man, when you start desiring something, eventually it will capture your, it, it, will cap, it will consume your mind and eventually you will act out on it. I've said this before, but I'm going to put it up there again. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a, ha sow a habit, reap a character. 
So a character reap a destiny. So what are we going to do about that? If it's this childbirthing way of like it starts here as just a thought and it ends in death, and I'll get to why that's true in a minute, how do we deal with that? Well, again, I'm glad you asked. Here are the steps to how, how it tends to happen. And I've already covered these in, in so far, so I'm going to go through them quickly. But the subtle and slippery slope into sin goes like this. First, there's attraction. I want, I want, I want. I want that thing. I want that new car. I want this. I want that. Whatever the thing is, I want that relationship to be healthy. I want, like, some of that stuff is even good stuff. But that attraction turns into deception. Now, all of a sudden, what I wanted, even if it was a good thing, I want it so desperately, I've turned it into a bad thing. Or it was a bad thing, but I've convinced myself that it's now a good thing because I've been I, I'm self-deceived. Then it becomes preoccupation. That's when it grabs a hold of your soul. All you can think about is, I want this thing, I want this thing, I want this thing. And some of these, these things can happen like in, over a long period of time, and they can happen like that. Then conception. That's the sin. That's what he just talked about. When, when, when the desire is conceived. Here's the problem. Once, once you've actually sinned, and you've made a habit of that sin, it is now subjection you have now become a slave to the very thing that you thought was going to bring you pleasure, that you thought was going to make you happy. If, if, if the issue is a relationship with another person, maybe it's the person you're sitting next to right now, and you've made that the thing to the point where you're demanding it be a certain way, the way you want it, you have become a slave to that thing. Because if it doesn't go the way you wanted it to go, you will not respond well. And here's the, pro here's the last part, desperation. And this is the most damaging and the most damning. And here's why. And some of you are sitting here today feeling this way because this is how I felt prior to being born again. The enemy will try to convince you that you've gone too far down a road to ever make your way back to God. The enemy will convince you that you've just lived in this, the, this sin, whatever it is, whether it's some dark thing or just some un, thing that doesn't, that doesn't feed your devotion to Christ so long that there's nothing you can do about it. Guys, that is not true. Here, yeah, praise the Lord. You're going to read in, in your daily readings this week, if you're doing your daily readings as you should, you're going to read about da like one of those guys that struggled through this cycle of sin. David, we just, the invocation passage was his response to that sin in, in Psalms 51. But in, in, in uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, guys, I'm not going to, because you're going to read about it this week, I'm not going to tell you the story, but does anybody remember how the story starts? It's David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and many others. Do you remember how it starts? In the spring, it's even before that. It's even before, somebody said when he saw her. Even before that, in the spring, when kings go out to war, David stayed home. That decision, which seems completely innocuous, right? What's wrong with that? Alone time led to some really bad choices. But guys, do you know, but don't, but, but don't linger in, the, in that. Because what Psalm 51 shows us, what David's life shows us is, do you remember how the story, how the scene ends? Nine months later, Bathsheba gives birth. The child dies. David is mourning through that whole time. He's grieving. He's writing Psalm 51. He's writing Psalm 32. He is before the Lord. He's repentant. He's going, Lord, show me your grace again, please. And you remember what he said, what they said what, how the story ends? David got up, washed himself, put on his clothes, and worshiped God.
Right? Don't let your sin keep, because the big win for Satan would have not, wasn't, wasn't David's fall. The big win would have been if David had stayed wallowing in the filth or wallowing in pity and not claiming the grace of God. But the son had to die. Why? Because Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Ephesians talks about this. Ephesians 2 talks about this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. But then do you remember what it says? That's, that's the first three verses. you remember what verse 4 and 5 say? Some of the best verses. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, rich in mercy, while you were dead in your transgressions, made you alive with Christ. While you were, while you were dead. Guys, the word dead there in Paul's writing, in James' writing, and the, the word dead means dead. It means fit, you're just dead as a doornail. Right? That's what sin does. Do you remember what happens in the scene in the garden? They're separated from God, the relationship, and then everything begins to die. But do you remember what God's solution was? Verse 21 of Genesis 3. So God covered their nakedness with the skin of an animal. You know what that implies? An innocent creature died to cover their sin. And that cycle has been going on over and over and over until the perfect innocent one, Jesus Christ, came and died to cover yours and my sin. So don't stay away from that grace. Look at your table talk question. We are at war, and it is for our very souls. If the battle for sin is waged in our mind, will, and emotions, what are some things you can do not only to defend against, but to take the fight to the enemy? So last point. How can we get ahead of the sin cycle? We have to be clear what the source of temptation is. We have to recognize the steps to temptation. And then we have to relentlessly practice the solution for temptation. Relentlessly practice the solution for And that's ultimately where James is going to go. Look at what he says about the solution. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So how does that answer the question? Here's the answer. Don't be deceived. How do you not be deceived? Remember God. Stay steadfast because he is steadfast. Anchor yourself to the rock that is Jesus Christ and don't move. In Isaiah 26, he says, the steadfast of mind, he will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. But do we believe that, guys? Do we fight like that? Do we believe fighting sin that way? Do we believe God's word is enough? Now, guys, here, here we go again. God's, guys, first of all, it's all I got. It's all I got. If there's anything coming out of this mouth that isn't part of this book, then don't listen. Right? Just don't. But, guys, it's enough. How do I know it's enough? Because when Jesus was, want, was sent into the wilderness to, to wander for, uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan came to him to tempt him three times, how did Jesus combat the sin that the enemy wanted to throw at him? The Word of God. So it is written. So it is written. So it is written. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how powerful the word is. Why is it that powerful? Because all scripture is God-breathed. Second Timothy tells us. And profitable for reproof, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man and woman of God might be thoroughly equipped 
for every good work. So how do I get ahead of this sin cycle? Give me something to do. I'm, okay, again, I'm glad you asked. First, it's the word. Then you have to have a disciplined life. And here's what disciplined life looks like. You have to, you have to discipline your life these three ways. Deal with sin in discipline these three ways. Deal with it immediately. Don't linger. Flee immorality, the Bible says. Don't be the fish that swims around looking at it going, it looks good, now it looks a little better because every time you do, it's going to look better and better and better. Second thing, deal with it ruthlessly. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand does, cut it off. If your foot does, cut it off. Now, is he talking about self-mutilation? Absolutely not. Don't have time to get into it. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, take extreme measures to deal with your sin issue. Don't play around with getting around to dealing with your sin because it will get around to you. And then lastly, consistently, don't grow weary in the fight. If it's a bad thing at zero on my scale of one to ten, it's a bad thing at three, it's a bad thing at five, it's a bad thing at eight. Do not grow weary of doing good. So we fight sin with the word, with a disciplined lifestyle, and then lastly, with grace. With grace. But God, Ephesians 2 told us. Guys, the reason... I'm, I'm more and more convinced, based on what I read in Genesis 3, that my sin struggles come down to two things. My wrong view of God, my wrong view of self. Everything in my, all of my sin, all of my con relational conflict, all, it comes down to a wrong view of God and a wrong view of self. We have got to get a better picture of who God is, a better picture of who we are apart from him, and then a better picture of what he's done for us. Re look at your table talk question, last one. Repentance is not resisting, but returning. It is replacing the lure of sin and darkness with what is lovely and full of light. So the question is, how do you focus more of your life on the light of his love? Because guys, get this. In verse, in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be the kind of first fruits among his creatures. You know what he's saying there? He's saying the word of God has made you born again. How are we born again? Not by the will of man, not by the will of flesh, but by the will of God. John 1 tells us. Because that's ultimately the answer to how we defeat and get out of the sin cycle. We see God as better. We see, we see every good, verse 17, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above. He has provided, guys, he has provided everything. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter. You have been born again, not to perishable seed, but to imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's how powerful his word is, and it's the truth of, of you, of who you are as a born-again believer in Jesus. We're going to go right into communion now. So as the couples come up to serve communion, I want, I want you to think about this, guys. I want you to think about the truth that our ultimate answer is, just in the, is, is not in us. It's not in trying harder. It is in the unchangeable, unrelenting goodness of God. It is in the it is guys, it is in understanding that that if you are his, you're still struggling with sin, but he's given you everything you need to live godly in Christ Jesus. He's given you the power over sin and death. And he's given you the power to live life to the full. How do I know that? Because Paul says in Romans 8, 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Just think about what that means. Guys, if he sent his son, this is what communion is about. Communion is about a time where we remember Christ's life was a life of sacrifice, a body broken for you. As a model for us to live lives of sacrifice. But it's also a reminder of the second part, his blood shed. So live, live a life of brokenness to God. Doing what God's called you to do. And in the times you fall short, and we all do, trust in the blood of Jesus. That's what we're celebrating in communion. That's the gospel. It is the power to save, and it's the power to sanctify. Guys, if Christ's death was either sufficient for all of your sins, or, he's, or God is holding back some of the wrath for you, and he's not. He's not. So step into that. Guys, step in to the victory and the power that is found by being invited to his table. It is a time for us, yes, to, to reflect on our lives. Where are we not fully broken for you, Lord? And then it's a time for us to celebrate. Thank you that, that the cross was enough. That I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness, if living well, if beating sin could come in my own strength, then Christ died for nothing. That's not the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the truth that communion is just a sweet time to remember that this is where our victory is found. This is how we get ahead of the sin cycle. This is how we can live in a way that demonstrates genuine faith. Because we're not doing it. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the flesh, I do not live in my strength, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we gather around your table as your people, Lord, I want to pray specifically that people would find victory over specific sins that they would take the next few minutes to lay their lives down broken before you. That they might even boldly confess to someone before they leave here today, this has been my struggle, pray for me in this. That they might be healed, as James tells us. And Lord, I pray that as we gather, we would not only remember that we are to live lives of brokenness for you, but we are to live lives of victory because of the blood, shed blood of Jesus Christ. That we are blood-bought saints. Let's not diminish the price that was paid. Let's celebrate together. In Jesus' name, amen.